When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Javier Blas and Jack Farchi, two journalists whose new book, The World for Sale, looks to explain how the world's trading markets shape our daily lives. Hosting today's discussion is the investigative journalist and broadcaster, Manveen Rana. Here's Manveen with more. Welcome, Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. Javier is a Bloomberg columnist covering energy and commodities. He was previously chief energy correspondent at Bloomberg, and before that, he covered commodities for the Financial Times. Jack is a senior reporter at Bloomberg News covering natural resources. Before that, rather aptly, he was Moscow correspondent and covered commodities for the Financial Times. And together, they've tracked one of the most important but secretive corners of the global economy, the commodities that we all consume daily. But their journey to our homes is surrounded by intrigue and geopolitics. Javier and Jack have managed to interview key figures in the commodity trading industry and in some cases, it was the first time these traders had ever spoken publicly. Now, the result of their labours can be found in this brilliant new book, The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. It was a fascinating read before, but now with war and sanctions effectively reshaping the world, it couldn't be more timely. Javier, I just wanted to start really by asking, how did this book come about? What made you write it? Well, the, the initial idea of the book really came many, many years ago. And it was a, a bit of a frustration of both Jack and I that uh, we wanted to know more about the industry. Uh, we thought that it was a very important industry, but there were no books about it. Uh, there were some uh, that they were written in the late 70s, early 80s, but nothing since then. And we always said it would be nice if someone was to write a book and explain all the historical context, who is who in the industry and, and exactly what the commodity traders do and how they do it. And I think that after 10 years of saying that, uh, we decided that actually, well, no one else was going to do it, so better we do it. So that was the, that, that was the genesis of the world for sale. And it's so fascinating because it does track the history through an extraordinary period. You know, sort of um, it starts off with <laughs> during a time where people are using telegrams to, to buy and sell in this market. I mean, it must have been fascinating for you covering covering the modern version to sort of go back and see how it all started. It was quite a lot of fun, particularly talking to some of the old hands of, of the industry. We interviewed some executives in the 80s and early uh, early 90s. And they were telling us of a, of a war where uh, transatlantic travel was very difficult, uh, where um, letters were sent with instruction for deals 
And then obviously the letter three weeks later will arrive at destination in Mongolia or Chile uh, and, and, and a deal will consummate it. But, um, but it was a, it was a, it was a period and, uh, when, uh, every trader will start in the mail room, uh, you know, writing the letters, closing the envelopes and delivering the letters to the post office or doing the telegrams and they have to code the telegrams. They will send the telegrams in code. So rivals would not learn what, what the deals were about. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite a lot of fun used to talk to some of the old hands, uh, and telling their stories about, you know, the, the fifties and sixties. The, the CIA, the KGB, uh, a, a war that is no longer with us. And Jack, this book seems so timely right now, just as sanctions are sort of kicking in. One of the, the big stories that the book tracks, really, is how the commodities market was changed by the fall of the USSR. Given your experience and your background, I mean, talk to us about how that, how that changed the market and just how important Russia has become as a global player. Well, I guess it was always uh, a huge economy, but until 1991, it was very much sealed off from the rest of the world. You know, you had the Iron Curtain and you had the the communist bloc, which traded within itself, and you, and then the rest of the world, the free market, as it was called in the West. And they were pretty much, apart from a few little flows of commodities here and there, which, as we recount in the book, they were being traded by the commodity traders, of course. But for, for the most part, those two markets were quite sealed off from one another. And then in one fell swoop in 1991, or maybe not quite one fell swoop, but pretty much in, in a few years from the late 80s through to the early 90s, you have the complete collapse. And then suddenly, instead of having the Soviet Ministry of Planning deciding where every barrel of oil and ton of aluminium should go and where it should be produced and at which factory it should be used, there was none of that. And suddenly there was a market. And in, in, you know, in, in the countries of the former Soviet Union, people weren't used to trading in a market. But who was used to trading in a market? Well, of course, the commodity traders. And so in they came and stepped in and made a huge amount of money doing it. And I mean, you know, of course, the oligarchs are a very hot topic of conversation at the moment over here. But, you know, we talked to some of the commodity traders who were active in the late 80s and 90s in the Soviet Union and then in Russia uh, and in other countries of the former Soviet Union. And I mean, we have a quote in the book from uh, one of the executives of Glencore at the time who said, we seeded quite a few of the oligarchs because they did. You know, they came in, they saw who was doing what in Russia and decided who to work with and who not to work with. And that met for one the basis of who became the oligarchs. Wow. Um, I mean, talk to us a little bit about that relationship, because I think most people wouldn't be aware of just how closely the traders worked with both the oligarchs and the Kremlin. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it now and it has always been true. Russia and the Soviet Union before it are huge producers of natural resources. That is, you know, the basis of the economy. And so what is more important than having a channel through which to sell those natural resources in a way to turn oil or metals or grains into cash. And the commodity traders provide that channel, which makes them hugely important. I mean, you know, you see we've been writing in the last few weeks, particularly in the last five, 10 years when a lot of other American, European businesses have pulled back from Russia, or even if they've stayed there until the last three weeks, they haven't been investing huge amounts of additional money in Russia. Who has been investing huge amounts of additional money in Russia? It's been the commodity traders. So you've seen Glencore, for example, in 2016, doing a big deal to take a stake in Rosneft. You've seen Trafigura, uh, another oil and metals trader, um, taking a big stake in one of Rosneft's flagship products. Again, it's kind of $8.5 billion deal. So across the board, you're seeing, you've seen commodity traders, even until very recently, doing more deals and delivering more money to, uh, to the Kremlin. And, you know, if you want an example of 
how the Kremlin feels about that. We had in 2017, Ivan Glassenberg, who was the CEO of Glencore at the time, went to the Kremlin and received a medal, the Order of Friendship from Putin, for what he'd done to help, uh, to help Russia. I mean, that is extraordinary. And in a way, I suppose that was also in recognition of something that happened back in... 2014, because we're making a, a big fuss at the moment about the sanctions that are in place, but this isn't the first time that Russia has been sanctioned. Tell us about what happened last time. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess the last round of sanctions were uh, narrower compared to compared to the ones we've seen this time and targeted more specifically. I mean, they did target the energy sector insofar as new investments in energy projects that the US and, and Europe felt required Western technology, things like shale oil in Russia, deep water drilling uh, offshore, the Arctic, where companies like Exxon had big plans to uh, invest in the Russian Arctic and open up a whole new area of the global oil industry. Uh, and those sanctions really put an end to that. But where they were most notable, particularly from a commodity trading point of view, was going after several of the oligarchs who were seen as being close to Putin. So somebody like Gennady Timchenko, who is one of Putin's friends and who was the co-owner of Gunvor, which is one of the big oil trading houses. Uh, and so at that point, the US in 2014 put him under sanctions, which was quite a moment for Gunvor. They announced a few hours after he'd been put under sanctions that in fact he'd sold his stake the previous day. Uh, and in fact, they've managed to survive that experience and are still trading today. I think they just put out a statement today announcing that they're not doing any new business in Russia. So they're somehow exempt from everything that happens. How much of a difference do you think the sanctions are making? To the Russian economy, a huge difference. Absolutely. I mean, you see what's happening to the ruble. You see what's happening. Uh, well, increasingly, you don't see because we don't because there aren't very many journalists left in Russia and able to report from from Russia. But, you know, the Russian economy is not in a nice place at the moment. That's certainly that's certainly the case. And how much of, of a difference is it making to the way commodity markets work? A huge difference. I mean, uh, we've been writing a lot at Bloomberg the last few weeks about the impact on commodity markets. And more than anything, it's not actually the sanctions per se, because apart from a few examples, so for example, the EU has put sanctions on Russian supplies of uh, iron ore and steel. Uh, the UK and the US and Canada have put sanctions on Russian uh, oil supplies. But the US, UK and Canada are relatively small consumers of Russian oil. The big flows of things like oil and grain and nickel and aluminium, which are particularly to, to Europe and gas, of course, haven't been targeted by sanctions yet. But what is happening is what traders are calling self-sanctioning, which means ship owners don't want to call at Russian ports anymore. Insurance companies don't want to insure vessels that are sailing from Russia. Banks don't want to finance cargoes of Russian commodities. And indeed, the companies that buy these commodities, even in some cases, the commodity traders don't want to touch Russian commodities because for ethical reasons, they, they and their employees don't want to be even indirectly sending money that's going to end up in the Kremlin. And for reputational reasons, you know, you saw uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, some traders at Shell bought a cargo of Russian oil at a deeply, deeply discounted price, and it caused an international outcry. And a few days later, Shell apologised and announced that they weren't going to be buying any Russian oil anymore. It's remarkable. I mean, how does this compare? You, you watch the markets all, all the time. Um, how how momentous is is what's happening at the moment? How, how does this compare to anything you've seen in your career? It's extremely momentous. I mean, we've had some we've had some momentous moments in in markets in in my career, but it certainly compares to spring 2020 when the oil price went to minus forty dollars a barrel, and it compares to the summer of 2008 when the oil price went to one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel and then collapsed. You know. Those are certainly in terms of in terms of the way that markets are beginning to to break, I would say. I mean, you saw a couple of weeks ago 
the nickel market on the London Metal Exchange literally broke. The price melted up uh, 250% in a day and trading had to be suspended. You're beginning to see markets break at the edges. And, you know, nickel is an important market. It's a key ingredient in stainless steel and uh, electric vehicle batteries, but it's not as important as something like wheat or oil. And you're beginning to see those markets as well fray at the edges and liquidity is becoming scarcer and people are getting quite worried. I think it's hard to overstate how important Russia is to global commodity supplies. You know, to lose Russian supplies, even to lose Russian, what, what Russia supplies Europe, is going to be an enormous shock if that happens. It hasn't happened yet. But if that does happen, it's going to be an enormous shock to the global economy. Uh, you know, people make comparisons with the 1970s. But the key thing to remember is the 1970s was just an oil shock. If we lose Russia from the global commodity markets, or even just the European and American commodity markets, that's not just an oil shock. It's an oil shock and a gas shock and a coal shock and a wheat shock and a corn shock and a nickel shock and an aluminium shock and a copper shock and a zinc shock. It's going to be very serious for the global economy. And we're all going to feel it. Well, in, in a way, that's the point. You know, they, the sanctions will hurt us a hell of a lot, almost as much as it'll hurt them. Javier, you, you know, you watch the energy markets all the time. How do we cope with Russian oil no longer being part of them, potentially? You know, how, how much will that impact us? And what do we do about it? Well, I mean, it depends on how much Russian oil we lose. I mean, Russia is uh, one of the world's largest producers, is the second largest oil exporter. Uh, it puts about 8 million barrels a day of crude and refined products into the international market. If we have to replace all of that, well, there is no way to do it. Uh, I mean, it's simply too much oil to be replaced. Uh, if we have to replace a portion of that, say about 3 million barrels a day, which is the expectation of the International Energy Agency that Russian oil production will drop by April uh, in a mix of what Jack was describing as sanctions and, and more importantly, sell sanctions. Well, that is still quite a lot, but it's something that perhaps we can manage. And it's going to be a combination of all of the above. So we're going to require more oil from the Middle East, in particular Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which hold spent production capacity. It's a question one whether they're going to uh, tap that spare capacity or they're going to be asking for diplomatic compromises with the West and what they want in particular from the White House. But, you know, the Saudis and the Emirates can help. But I'm afraid that also demand is going to have to come down and that's going to be either voluntary reductions in demand and the International Energy Agency has proposed a 10-point plan to how we can reduce demand. I mean, there are things like uh, lowering the speed at highways, uh, making uh, public transportation free in some days, particularly in weekends. So to uh, try to convince people to leave their cars at home and use public transportation. But even with all of that, probably we are going to need even higher prices than today to create what traders call demand destruction. We, we just need to price gasoline and diesel to a point where uh, some consumers will say, no, uh, I'm not going to be driving uh, this weekend because it's just simply too expensive. And, and the demand just cools down. But uh, I'm afraid that Russia is so large in the energy market, particularly in the oil market, that it's going to be a painful process. I mean, that's a really good reminder that this will affect all of us. You know, we will feel it. Um, you mentioned there that Saudi and the Middle East could sort of provide some of the solution. We saw recently Boris Johnson made a, a rather controversial trip to Saudi to meet the Crown Prince, um, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, because clearly... 
we are having to make difficult decisions now over oil. Do we, you you know, as somebody who watches the market, though, do you have a sense of how helpful Saudi Arabia would be willing to be in the current circumstances? Because obviously there are relationships with Russia too. Yeah, I mean, what is very different of this crisis to every other crisis that I have covered in the oil market is how close Saudi Arabia is today with Russia. I mean, they have uh, the the OPEC, the oil cartel from, you know, famous from the 70s from, from bringing the global economy to his knees, particularly in 1973, 74. Uh, we call it now OPEC plus, and that plus is mostly Russia. I mean, the, the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin appears to be close, and, and the Saudis have worked very hard to have Russia on board with, with, within OPEC. So can the Saudis just turn around to that relationship that they have fought very hard to build with Russia? Uh, I think that they can but it's going to be uh, if they can achieve other objectives. And, and certainly they're going to want to have a much better relationship that they have been having with the United States um, over the last few months. I mean, uh, President Biden made headlines during the campaign saying that he was going to make Saudi Arabia pariah. Uh, obviously, he has not done that. And actually, the White House has been asking the Saudis to increase production, kind of emphasizing how important the kingdom is. But with that kind of starting point, I think that the Saudis see this as an opportunity to force not only the United States, but probably a number of European governments into a different trajectory um, with, with the house of, uh, of, of with, the, with the Saudi royal family. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that they may help, but it's going to come after significant accommodation from the West to whatever the Saudis want to put on the table. And, and and it may be that the West have to make those accommodations because the price of oil reaches a point that is damaging the economy so much that, um, you know, the West have no option but just to, to, to say yes to the Saudis. I mean, Saudi Arabia here is playing a very dangerous game because I don't think that it's in the interest of Saudi Arabia to trigger a global recession just not acting on oil prices. And it's not only the war. The oil market was very tight and prices were going up even before the war started. And then Saudi Arabia just decided that Jews wanted to enjoy high prices. So it's, it's a bit of playing playing with fire. And, and I don't know if, if the Saudis really know what happens if they say no to increased production, because Western countries will have no memories and they will try to never be in that situation ever again. And that the only solution for that is just going to be a massive push into electric vehicles. That's a very good point. If we're not buying Russia's oil, where where will they still be selling? Well, um, China, uh, India, a number of other emerging countries that they are willing to still buy in um, Russian oil. I mean, Russian oil is selling at a, at a huge discount, about $30 a barrel discounted. And when, you know, the price of bread, the North Sea oil crude, uh, is selling at around $113, $114 a barrel. The ability to buy it at a, at a bit discount is very attractive to a number of countries. So I, I, I suppose that more, more Russian oil is going to flow into, into China and India. But even those markets have a limit of how much extra Russian oil they can take. And I will expect that if Russian oil exports drop by 3 million barrels a day, as the International Energy Agency is, is thinking. At the end of the day, Russia will have to shut down a number of, uh, a significant amount of his own production 
because it's not going to find any buyers out there. That's extraordinary. Do we, do you have a sense of just how substantial that is for the for the Russian economy? You know, there's been lots of questions here about sort of when you put the squeeze on sanctions, whether it's oil or other commodities, um, how much that sort of constricts their ability to carry out operations like Ukraine. So how much of a hit is it for them? Oil will be the, the biggest hit, certainly. That is the, the biggest uh, earner of a foreign foreign exchange for for Russia significantly more than than gas uh, and potentially if if I have to decide in Europe what to do how to hit Russia do do we use oil we do you we use gas I will think that oil is something that the European economy can take better than uh, than gas and and oil makes a, a bigger impact into the Russian economy until now. We have not seen a big drop in, in Russian exports because a lot of the oil that has been loaded in vessels as we speak was negotiated before uh, three weeks ago when the war started. But we will see the real impact of that self-sanctioning and the sanctions uh, probably in the next few days and, and certainly in, in April. And that's when the, the big hit to the Russian economy will come. But there is a question, and is that even with all the discounts, with even lower volumes, I don't know if that's going to be enough to to stop the war in Ukraine. I don't know if Putin looks at at the numbers of the financials and say, "Well, I'm making less money on oil, and then so I I, I should just look for a peace uh, agreement in 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 Ukraine." And and after all, even with the discounts that Russian oil is trading, because prices have gone so much higher, it's going to be still a good number for for Russia. I mean, if Russia can sell its oil at say seventy five, eighty dollars a barrel, that's a price that a year ago, Russia could only dream to sell. Mm, it's not that much of a shock. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
Jack, you know, it's really interesting to sort of hear about the relationship between Russia and Saudi Arabia. You know, it's perhaps a relationship that we haven't paid very much attention to. The really big players in your book, though, are, are, are sort of beyond countries, are sort of these big giants like Glencore, who you mentioned earlier, and Trafigura. Is that something else that we should have been paying more attention to in terms of their relationship with Russia? You know, I mean, I know you've written about how Glencore has even sort of made loans in the past to Russia when they've been in a tight spot. Talk to us a a bit about that. Yes, in short, I think we should have been paying more attention. I mean, I guess you'd expect me to say that. I think probably if I had to sum up the thesis of our book, it's that these few companies, and really it's just a few companies, maybe 10 companies in total globally, which are the biggest traders of oil, metals, and agricultural commodities, play an enormously important role in geopolitics. And currently, we, you know, populations, but also governments, regulators, um, both financial regulators and political, you know, politicians, are not paying attention to them. And that is a mistake because they play a huge role. And, you know, for example, in Russia, they've been doing deals that have delivered cash to the Russian government, but all over the world, they've been playing a huge role. You know, in in Libya, in the civil war in, in 2011, they were propping up the rebels. In Cuba, in the time of uh, Fidel Castro, they were doing deals with the Castro government and keeping it going. You know, a- across the political spectrum and across the world, they have a huge political influence and impact. And they have operated almost entirely under the radar and that really ought to change in our view. I mean, I'm just so glad somebody's written this book. You know, I've sort of done investigations around Africa where I've seen companies like Glencore in action. I've sort of seen the, the difference they've, they, they're making and the way they are sort of um, huge global players when it comes to, to the governments in those places. Um, but I think it does come as a surprise to a lot of people. You know, these are companies with sort of GDP size budgets and much more access than we realise to the geopolitical sphere. I mean, just tell us a, a, bit, a bit about sort of some of the most surprising incidents you found in investigating this book. Gosh, well, there were a lot. I mean, one story I'll tell you, which uh, which I think really kind of sums up the role that the commodity traders have played in countries uh, around the world and across time is a story that was told to me by the minister who was in the government dealing with this situation at the time. This was in Jamaica in the early 1980s. And the, the, the person who told this story to me was the, was the minister of energy and, and mining. And he told me this experience. So Jamaica at that time was struggling a lot economically. Oil prices had gone up because of the 1970s, the oil shocks, inflation. Jamaica was an oil importer. The economy was struggling. Politically, it was pretty fragile. There was quite a lot of tension between the two main political parties. And in general, it was, you know, the economy was a bit on a knife edge and so was the political situation. He was in Parliament one Friday afternoon and Jamaica was buying one cargo of oil every month. They had one refinery in Kingston uh, and each month they would get one cargo of oil, which would then fuel the petrol stations of Jamaica for the next month. So he's in Parliament this Friday evening and and an official from the central bank comes and says, we've got a bit of a problem. This month, there's no money left in the central bank to pay for the oil. And at this point, we're going to run out of oil on Monday, which for the Jamaican economy at that point was probably going to mean chaos. (laughs) Yeah. So he calls the only person he can think of who might be able to help, which is Mark Rich who was at that time the founder of the company that is now Glencore, the world's biggest commodity trader, very famous, even even that, uh, maybe not quite yet then, uh, but since for, for being a fugitive for US just, from US justice. And he calls Mark Rich. It's about two in the morning in Switzerland where Mark Rich is. He wakes him up, gets him out of bed. Mark Rich says, what do you want? He explains the situation. And Mark Rich says, okay, give me an hour. 
And an hour later, a cargo full of oil, a ship full of oil, uh, which is which Mark Rich has already going from Venezuela to the US, is being diverted towards Jamaica. It stops off at Jamaica, unloads some oil, and solves this problem for him. And that is the power of the commodity traders. You know, and he told me very frankly, I don't think the government would have survived if it hadn't been for that. That's extraordinary. That's the power that they have. Very important there, uh, which we, we tell that in, in the book, is that there was not even a contract. It just Mark Rich phone move the cargo, but Jamaica never even signed a contract. So it was just a favour? A, a favour that obviously Glencore or Madrid and Glencore later recovered uh, with, with several multiples over, over the years because Jamaica was also a big exporter of the ingredient which we used to make aluminium. So uh, obviously Madrid was not this doing it for philanthropy. He knew that a price would be coming later and obviously uh, Glencore made quite a lot of money over the years, but it's the kind of thing that the traders do. It's, it's, it's a deal that it can be over the phone, don't need to consult with anyone, it's done, no paperwork, no contract, we do it for you, it's for you today, but tomorrow you will have to give us something. It's extraordinary. In a way, Mark Rich, I'm glad you've brought him up because he is a character who kind of exemplifies your thesis. You know, he sort of shows exactly the amount of power these traders had around the world, but also sort of um, the lack of accountability. They, they could make as much difference as sort of um, any democratically elected government, and yet nobody would be calling them out and there's very little oversight. Talk us through the Mark Rich story, because I think there'll be people listening who won't be aware of it, but it does kind of tell the story of these companies and how they've grown. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, Mark Rich is the kind of the godfather of the commodity trading industry, the modern commodity trading industry. He did an awful lot, particularly to pioneer the trading of oil as a commodity. And oil is now by far and away the most important commodity for all of these companies. And also the one that probably has the most geopolitical clout because, you know, as the story of Jamaica shows, when a country runs out of oil, probably the government doesn't last much longer. And on the other hand, you know, as you see in Russia, if you can sell your oil, You've got cash. So that makes the commodity traders enormously important on both sides. Mark Rich uh, started out at a company called Philip Brothers, which was the biggest commodity trader of its day in the 1940s and 50s. It was predominantly a metals trader and was trading metals uh, around the US and Europe, helping to rebuild Europe after the Second World War huge demand for metals, and they made lots of money doing that. But Mark Rich started noticing that there was a possibility to trade oil in kind of the late 1960s, early 1970s, and decided that that was what he wanted to do. Jumped in, started making deals, developed some good relationships and contacts and friendships in places like Iran and Nigeria, and became an oil trader. His appetite for risk was more than uh, the bosses of Philip Brothers could handle. And so in 1974, he set out on his own and started Mark Rich & Co., uh, and very soon became the world's largest oil trader. I mean, just enormously successful on the back of the relationships with oil producing countries he had in the Middle East and Africa. Because in those days, you know, 1979, you had oil prices spiking uh, almost overnight. And he was able to secure oil at relatively low prices because he had all of his good friendships uh, in these countries, which indeed he himself admitted in, in, in certain cases he was paying bribes. And Mark Rich & Co, uh, we report in the book in 1979, made a billion dollars of profit, which sounds kind of, well, lots of companies make a billion dollars of profit these days. In 1979, that would have made them one of the 10 largest companies in the world. And it was owned by five people, essentially. So, and nobody, and nobody knew about it. I mean, you know, nobody was paying attention. 
1983, uh, he was indicted by the US government for trading with Iran during the Iran hostage crisis, and at that point became a fugitive from US justice. Switzerland, on the other hand, was less hostile towards him, and he set up his base in Switzerland and carried on being the world's largest commodity trader from Switzerland then for the next 10 or 15 years. And then in 1992-93, his company, Mark Rich & Co., went through a bit of a crisis. He tried to corner the zinc market to buy up all the world's supply of zinc and squeeze the price higher. It didn't go very well. They lost some money. And his kind of lieutenants within the company forced him out and bought the company from him. And that became Glencore. It's an, it's an astonishing story. In a way, though, you know, he, he made a, a lot of money being able to do things like trade with Iran when it wasn't quite allowed. And we, we have known that some of these companies have done things that are sort of slightly, you know, not quite by the book, I guess. Do we know how they'll be behaving now with sanctions in place with Russia? I think it's a fascinating question and one that we're spending quite a lot of energy reporting about. Most of them have issued by now, I think with one or two exceptions, most of them, and this is unusual for this sector, I mean, they don't like to speak publicly and certainly not about politically sensitive things, have issued statements about the war in Ukraine. Some of them have not described it as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They've described it as the situation in Ukraine. But most of them have now put out statements saying that it's very bad and that they're looking at their, they're reviewing their business in Russia. Most of them have not said they're going to exit their business in Russia. They just said they're looking at their business in Russia and thinking about what to do about it. I mean, Gunvor, for example, the company I mentioned earlier, you know, as being, I mean, the US Treasury in 2014 suggested that uh, Putin himself had uh, had access to Gunvor, to Gunvor cash, which is something that Gunvor has always denied. But nonetheless, uh, the US Treasury said it. But Gunvor actually has gone further than most of them in saying they're doing no new business in Russia. Most of the trading companies have been fairly quiet about it. I mean, it's certainly true that it's quite hard to do new business in Russia today, even if you wanted to, because finding a ship to put Russian commodities on and a bank to finance them is not so easy, even if you've got the deal of a lifetime. So I think the reality is that most of them aren't doing new business in Russia, but that doesn't mean that all of them aren't trying to do new business in Russia, because certainly I think some of them probably are. Others, I think, you know, genuinely would rather not be doing business in Russia at all, but they have long con long-term contracts and they don't want to get out of them because to just tear up a long-term contract and say, sorry, we don't want to do business with you anymore because you're Russia or you're a Russian company or you're a Russian state-owned company is not how contract law works and they don't want to be sued. And, and Javier, one of the other big themes of your book really is sort of the rise of China. Similarly, in terms of, you know, if we're looking at, at what Glencore and, and other companies are doing, do we think China will now benefit from the sanctions on, on Russia, what will the net effect be? Well, I think that it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it on a very narrow field of commodities, you could say that, yes, China may be able to buy some cheaper commodities from, from Russia. Uh, certainly the oil that China is going to be buying from, from Russia, it's going to be discounted. But the rest of the oil that China is going to be buying from the Middle East and the West Africa and so on, is going to be more expensive. So the net effect, I think, that probably is neutral for, for, for China. See, yeah, some, some discounted barrels on one side, but some more expensive barrels on the other. And the same goes with aluminium, and the same goes with copper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that China would be very interested on the economic long-term consequences of the crisis. Because if this continues longer, and so far we don't see any indication that the war is about to end, and that uh, Mr. Putin is prepared for a peace agreement, the longer that this goes, the larger the economic damage to the global economy is going to be. Higher inflation, at some point, and we are already seeing it, 
the central banks are acting to clamp down inflation and they do it with the only tools that they have higher interest rates, which is going to slow down uh, the global economy. Uh, the already shortages that we see in commodities are going to have a, are having a really dramatic impact on the manufacturing industry in Europe. It is not um, completely out of you know possibilities that we may enter in a recession in the second half of the year. And a recession is bad news for for China, which is a, an economy that is very open to the world through his export channel. So yes, there is a benefit, a few barrels discounted, but I think that the cost is much larger. And, and it's one of the things that I have been surprised of how the Chinese leadership sees this, because at the end of the day, the longer the, the war goes, the higher the risk of a global economic recession or at least a recession, certainly in Europe. And I don't think that that's positive for the for the Chinese economy, and therefore for the Chinese, you know, Chinese country, Chinese political and economic stability. If we do suddenly have a situation where countries like China and India are still buying oil from from Russia, whereas nobody else is, I mean, are we going to? Will it change the way we trade? Will it sort of be in blocks? Is this sort of almost the end of globalization, or certainly sort of a big setback for it? I think that probably when historians look at the last few years and probably when they do, you know, a review with the wide angle lens that that the time gives you and say that, you know, we are looking at what has happened over the last 14 years and we are in year 2100, probably we'll see that the, the globalization kind of started to go in reverse through around the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. You know, the Trump presidency certainly was another setback for globalization. And then the, the Ukrainian invasion by Russia probably was a kind of the final hit to that globalization wave that we have over the last 30 years and, and they kind of stop. Is it going to end? I don't think that globalization ends because a lot of the trends that underpin globalization are going to still be there. I mean, how we can communicate the fact that we can do this over video conference, the fact that it's very easy to travel even if it's just a bit more annoying now to go through an airport, but it's still extremely easy to travel across continents and relatively cheap compared to what was to travel long distance, air flights, um, only 20, 30, let alone 50 years ago. All of those trends that made possible globalization are going to remain there, but certainly it feels different. And I think that it has been all the way since 2008 with the global financial crisis, then Trump presidency, and now the invasion of Ukraine that has shattered the the global consensus of globalization of a a world that was just getting flatter. If anything, the world doesn't look any more flatter. Jack, you know, we've talked about how reliant we are on on Russia for oil um, and how much of of a shock it'll be to the global market. Another thing that I think we don't pay enough attention to really is what Russia and China have been doing across Africa in the last few decades and sort of buying up um, mines and, and so many of the commodities that we are going to be reliant on, for example, for, for electric batteries in the future, you know, whether it's cobalt or nickel or, or vanadium. Is that something which is still going to give them an awful lot of power, you know, regardless of sanctions, because the West hasn't really been buying up in the same way as some of those mines? Uh, I, mean, I think that's more a story of China than Russia. It's certainly the case that China has taken a very clear strategic decision quite a number of years ago to dominate the battery industry for electric vehicles and to dominate the entire supply chain of the battery industry for electric vehicles. And they, you know, Chinese companies have been investing 
across Africa, but also in places like Indonesia, which is the world's biggest nickel producer, uh, in, in South America, in lithium, in order to dominate the supply of the commodities that are used in batteries. And it is certainly the case that China has stolen a huge march on the rest of the world on that by a long distance. I mean, if you look at things like the processing of chemicals that are used to make the batteries for electric vehicles, so not the, I mean, you know, because you can't, nobody can choose where the world's cobalt resources or nickel resources or lithium resources are located, you know, as it happens, a vast amount of the world's cobalt is in Congo and that won't ever change. But actually who processes that, that cobalt? Something like 80% of it happens in China which gives them a huge stranglehold on the supply chain for electric vehicle batteries and is allowing Chinese companies, along with lots of other things that the Chinese government has done, for example, you know, subsidizing electric vehicles. I mean, you know, China is a long way ahead of most of Europe and, and the US in terms of the penetration of electric vehicles into the market and developing companies, car companies that are, that are making vehicles with electric um, batteries in them. That has made China really the forefront of the electric vehicle industry and given them a huge advantage, for sure. But so for, for the people who sort of think the answer to, to our reliance on oil, for example, is going to be the environmental solutions coming down the road, we may be in, in just as much trouble when it comes to those. Well, I think that is the answer, but it's not an easy answer. The, the sad truth is that there aren't easy answers here. Energy is going to be difficult and expensive for, for some time to come. It's such a brilliant book, and I really can't recommend it enough to, to everybody listening. But thanks so much to Javier Blas and Jack Farchi for, for talking to us tonight. And thanks, too, to Intelligence Squared. 